And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, or guten tag, or... You know, we could do that some night. I could have a whole laundry list of dictionary terms from around the world, because we are Lintu in something like 190 countries. I mean, this is kind of like when I spoke at the UN. This morning's program is really different, and I've got to say I approach this with a little trepidation because of all the things that I've dealt with over the years. Probably my least favorite thing is economics. And I'm going to pretend like everybody else, I don't know anything because I don't know anything about economics and neither does anybody else. I mean, you've heard the famous story about the economist who's briefing the president and he says, I think this actually happened during the Truman administration. He said, Mr. President, on the one hand, and then he says, but on the other hand, and it's like uh, you can never from economists get a firm answer because it's not caused, caused. (laughs) I'm I'm in great shape. It's not called the dismal science for nothing. But before we get to that, I've got to lead tonight with a major story. The Korean War, after 65 years, apparently has ended. I mean, I was literally watching CNN the other morning, just getting ready to kind of go to bed, and it's on the other side of the world and all this, and I'm riveted by by the images, the live images of these two leaders, President Moon and the head of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, stepping over this this little tiny concrete barrier. I mean, it's what, three inches high, which separates North and South Korea. And, uh, you know, uh, Un steps over it and grabs Moon's hands. And, I mean, a whole new era. And everybody is a Twitter, pun intended, why is this suddenly occurring? Now, I know there's a very large contingent of Americans who think it's Trump. I think it's something much, much bigger. And the reason is because what, what's really different now than in the past? I mean, there have been economic sanctions. We've had military exercises. We have 28,000 troops. We fly B-2s and B-17s and whatever near the border. I mean, all the stuff we've been doing, we're still doing. And we've, you know, tightened the screws economically. We've gotten maybe China to participate a little more. But there's something much more fundamental. And I really want everyone to pay attention because there is a a tremendous amount of speculation. We're going to talk about some of this tomorrow night with Joseph Farrell in our show, which is going to kind of look at the world. Where is the world headed at Warp 9? And what don't we know that we should know? And is it what all the social media types are talking about, you know, the QAnons and all that, my old friend David Wilcox, or is it something, I mean, is that all diversion, which is what I think the Trump administration has been from the beginning, but before something so much bigger, so much more, more a reason why a lifelong dictator from a family of dictators would suddenly talk seriously about giving up the one thing he has that's his claim to to longevity in that job as head of North Korea. I mean, there's something, and people are sending me emails, no, it's not and all that. You know, you don't know. Guys, you don't know. You think you know because you've got, quote, sources. I freely admit, I haven't a clue. And it's in that business of being clueless where we are open to extraordinary out-of-the-box possibilities. Again, as I've been saying for years, the only thing that will make this planet come together is if we are confronted by some major force off-planet which is billed as the enemy. And then human beings, regardless of their stripe or political persuasion or whatever, will get together to confront the enemy. How do I know this? Because during the height of the Cold War, when Reagan went to Reykjavik and talked with Gorbachev, that was the substance of their conversation. And then Reagan again reiterated it at the United Nations a couple times. He said, if we discovered there was an alien threat, we would, you know, our differences would be put aside and we would come together. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. It, just, just Google YouTube. It's there. That's what I see actually happening because I don't think on the planet itself we have leverage enough to get, you know, lifelong dictators 
to change their spots or stripes or whatever, you know, predatory cat you want to bring up into the conversation. I think it's got to be something bigger from outside. And again, and we're going to get into all of this tomorrow night. Tonight, we're going to be talking about currencies, Bitcoin, crypto, this, crypto, that. But before we do that, I have one other little story for you. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's show, which is uh, a cryptocurrency conspiracy, follow the money, scroll down on that page, on Bob Harrison's page, and item number four in Radio with Pictures under my items, NASA in the last week launched TESS, which is the little new telescope that it's being put into a very interesting inclined resonant orbit with the moon. So every 13.7 days, it makes a trip around, and that's roughly half the lunar orbit. And so the lunar gravity will keep it in this stable position. It's out there to follow on the Kepler Space Telescope, which found something like two or 3,000 you know, new planets by staring at one spot in space in the direction of the constellation of Lyra. Well, this is going to do an all-sky survey. It does sectors of the sky, and then it moves on to another sector and another sector. And in about two years, it will cover something like 85% of the northern and southern hemisphere and it's supposed to give us all kinds of interesting new targets for much bigger telescopes, um, both on the ground and in space, like the, uh, the uh, Webb telescope to be launched in a couple years, to look at as targets for in-depth atmospheric analyses of these occulting planets. Remember, the way these specific spacecraft work is they're looking at stars and for the little brightness dimmings, is that a complicated term, brightness dimmings? The, the, the dimmings, the minute dimmings, the less than 1%, half percent, quarter percent, whatever, that occur for a few hours when a planet crosses the disk of the distant star behind it like an eclipse and diminishes by the percentage of the area of the planet compared to the area of the star, the brightness of the star, which is what the telescopes are detecting. And as you know, Kepler discovered something really extraordinary in the direction of its gaze out of the 150,000 uh, objects that it was looking at, something called Tabby's star, which has these extraordinary changes in brightness at irregular periods with a hint of regularity underneath the irregularity, the largest dip being something like 22%, which is humongous in terms of the normal detections uh, by this method. So the folks that think that Tabby, including me, is basically artificial and is caused by some kind of uh, remarkable objects or object orbiting Tabby's star, which is 1,500 light years away and pretty dim. It's almost 12th magnitude, which is really, really, really dim. Um, they said, well, since Kepler only looked at one little tiny portion of the sky, there could be a thousand or a million tabbies out there and we haven't seen them. Tess is going to find other potential tabbies if they exist. Because it's going to look at millions and millions and millions of stars brighter than, I forget what the cutoff magnitude is, but it's it's kind of like a little little stars a little brighter than what Kepler was detecting. So we'll finally have a truly statistically significant survey, and we should know in um, a couple of years if Tabby is unique. My bet is Tabby is, if not unique, it's certainly almost one of a kind, which argues strongly that it's somehow what we think it is by the numbers, which is somehow connected to this solar system. A um, detailed analysis of which will be presented in the new book that we're working on, Getting Closer, you know, uh, Hidden Mars, A War in Heaven, and which we might discuss kind of tangentially in this workshop we're setting up, which I'll talk about later in the show. Anyway, with that as prologue, let me switch into high gear and introduce our guest of the morning, because you, of course, all know him as part of our imaging panel, as a guy who's done really amazing work on the arcologies of Mars. 
Well, Robert has a whole other side. So let me let me kind of tell you why he's on tonight talking about cryptocurrencies. Robert Harrison was raised on the edge of Liverpool and still considers it his hometown. Liverpool might not be Britain's largest city, but it is its best city. That's a direct quote from Mr. Harrison. Robert currently lives in Birmingham, where he moved to take up employment back in 1987. And between 1987 and 2010, he worked as an economist for the Birmingham City Council. Birmingham City Council. This mostly involved researching and analyzing the Birmingham economy in order to develop the best economic strategies for making the city prosper. He also provided economic analysis that aided the city's bids for large projects funding from the British government and, of course, at that time, the European Union. Other work included local economic forecasting and devising methods for answering what-if scenarios to aid the city's decision-making. In 2010, Bob decided to retire early. Having long been a keen investor, we're going to get into this tonight, it was time for the investment portfolio to do what it was intended to do. And it did. For after achieving his dream of financial independence, Bob decided to retire from the rat race in 2010. And as a child of the space age, he became fascinated by space exploration in the present as well as in the past, and speculations about extraterrestrial life that came to him from an early, early age. These have now continued to interest him in terms of, for instance, Dr. Carl Sagan's early speculations about the possibility of the Elysium pyramids on Mars having had a long-term impact on his thinking. Well, I could go on, but you can read it all on the website. So without further ado, welcome in a new guise and with a new hat, at least for this morning, Mr. Robert Harrison. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Okay, um, I think there is something that you wanted to do to begin this program, which when you sent it to me, I thought, what a great way to begin the show. So why don't I hand it over to you? And I think this is kind of like a frame around our discussion this morning. Mm -hmm. Go for it. Well, one one thing that struck me about uh, Bitcoin is that it's actually part of a larger trend uh, around what we'll call the geekocracy. Oh, what a great term. Uh, not mine. <laughs> uh, if you think about it, the um, what we call the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs or the geekocracy, it, it's been on you know since the beginning of this century. It's been on a sort of search and destroy mission against all existing business models and, to some extent, all existing economic, social, and political models of life too, and to replace them of alternatives of their own making, utilising the new technologies, especially the internet. So if you, if you think of things, you've got uh, Amazon versus conventional retailing and... Uh, the so-called big box companies. Yep, versus uh, retailing and normal mail order. And you've got Uber versus traditional cab taxi companies and taxi regulations, so some cities are hitting back at them in the courts. There's the online film and mu music streaming uh, services versus music artists, record, com record companies, television, cinema and video stores. Uh, R&B versus small holes, hotels and uh, bed and breakfast stays. Cloud surface services versus our personal computers. Facebook versus traditional advertising and perhaps taking over people's social lives and political interactions. Uh, we've got the cryptocurrencies versus the banks, official money and the ability of governments to affect the economy through their uh, monetary policies. Uh, and Which we're going to try to drill down on this morning. And then there's the whole thing around artificial intelligence uh, so that's sort of versus humans when you get into the automation part of it. What did you mean and here when you said, Robert, what did you mean here when you said artificial intelligence versus <clears throat> non-geek humans? 
Is that a genetic division or is that? <laughs> uh, well, I was say, well, if they're going to be owning the companies, aren't they? That, um, that it, it's, it's a jokey thing, of course, but they'll be owning the companies that will be providing the artificial intelligence and the robotics and the rest of it. Uh, so their skills will be in demand for a while anyway, but they'll, they'll have ownership. But the rest of us, uh, you know, over time might find it rather disconcerting and economically uh, discombobulating. So Yeah, I'm kind of currently on a search to find the right economist. I put out some feelers in the last week. For economists who want to come on the show and talk about AI and robotics and uh, guaranteed national incomes and the idea that most people will not have to work nine to five jobs, that you don't tax labor, you tax technology, which, of course, you know, people don't work any harder now than they have for the last 10, 20,000 years. The only reason we have huge amounts of wealth is because of technology, the so-called amplification factor. So I've tried to find some mainstream economists to come on and talk about this, and you know it's really hard. Do you know anybody you might uh, be able to shoot to me that would want to talk about this? Uh, no, it's there's um, basically the only sort of people who have looked into this. I think um, one of the large accountancy uh, consultancy firms, I think uh, McKinley, is it, came up with a high number or. Um, some inter international organization has done so recently, I think, uh, coming up with wildly different ideas about how many jobs might be replaced in the next 20 years. Of course, we don't know whether the free labor will be taken up by other types of occupations, but automation largely has had the effect, I think, in the 21st century of allowing lots of rather low-paid jobs to be created in some Well, mostly ways. in the so-called service sectors, like, like, like yeah. McDonald's or, you know, Chicken Little yeah. or whatever. So that that's hardly improving people's lot, uh, whereas the sort of middle school jobs have been the ones that have been getting automated. When I used to watch Star Trek, The Next Generation, which of course is supposed to be set in the 23rd century and all this stuff, I found it interesting that everything was automated except for the service jobs. When you would see shots of 10 forward, there were still waiters. When you went to the barber shop, there was this big blue guy who had all these political opinions and he wanted to always tell Picard about how better to run the ship. He was cutting hair with a manual scissors. Is If, if that's the direction that these economic trends are, are forcing us, I mean, it's basically the worst jobs you can imagine, which is a service job where you wait on customers and receive no thanks and low wages, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, is that really our future economically? <laughs> yes, you're asking me to predict the future, something economists aren't very good at, um, <laughs> or anybody else really. Uh, it could be, um, you know, the thing about services jobs is part, uh, part of what people, the customers like about it is the human interaction, uh, which is why, you know, no robotic uh, I suppose barbers in, in these science fiction films and series. Um, mm. But it, but it's a big issue, isn't it? If, if artificial intelligence is it good at figuring out things as us, or better, uh, a whole load of scientific jobs, my type of job, uh, just sort of disappear, really. Uh, or, do, or be much smaller in numbers. Perhaps we, perhaps humans might have the edge in terms of uh, inspiration or jumps of jumps of logic, you know, uh, intuition, if you like, compared to artificial intelligence. But then it's hard to say whether it's all overhyped. 
in terms of what artificial intelligence will be able to achieve in terms of independent thinking. Yeah, I wish my old friend Marvin Minsky was still with us. He was one of the founders of the AI lab at MIT. And I had him on one of my cruises, and we had such a wonderful time, and he has such a brilliant mind, and it's just a shame that I can't pick up the phone and, you know, Marvin, come on, and let's talk about this. So I, if anybody out there knows a futurist economist or a futurist economist, or I'd, I'd like to have some suggestions because I think this is something we should grapple with, certainly on the other side of midnight. And um, I didn't mean to put you on, on the spot, Bob, but you did do forecasts for the city of Birmingham and they had been based on something. Past relationships. Ah. That's, the prob that's the problem with forecasting. The other thing about forecasting, of course, is uh, the models have to be stabilized, so they never tend to forecast recessions unless you p uh, put in uh, pessimistic assumptions. Hmm. Okay, so let's get to the subject of the morning. We've got about five or six minutes to the bottom of the hour. What the hell are cryptocurrencies, a name that makes me kind of very, very suspicious? And how do they relate to <clears throat> real currencies and real money? and real economies. Right, just... Uh, and can you be a little... Can you, can you adjust your volume at all? Just if... Is that better? I'm probably mumbling. Uh, just, just a tad. Yeah, just speak into the mic. That'd be probably better. Yeah, I'll just bring, bring it closer. So, it, I've got a definition here somewhere on the... I mean, it seemed to me odd because the only time I've, I've really encountered the term crypto attached to another term was... It's, it's be, well, it's because uh, they use uh, encryptation. So it's uh, uh, for the, the art of making and breaking uh, encryptation is uh, cryptography. Mm -hmm. So that's where the crypto comes from. Uh, so the little definition of crypto coins I came up with... or stole from somewhere and then reworded was uh, that crypto coins are unofficial digital currencies in which encryption techniques are used to regulate the generation of the units of currency and verify the transfer of funds and that they operate independently of central and commercial banks. So it's an attempt basically to supplant official money with a uh, a startup money, if you like, a, a private money. Okay, let's let's do this. Let's pretend. I don't have to pretend much with me. That I don't know anything about economics. <clears throat> I don't know about you know buy low, sell high, that kind of thing. So where do we start with no, a normal economy? How is value apportioned? to something arbitrary like a like a coin or a piece of paper that kind of thing uh and how in the world does this digital world relate to something that you can't touch or taste or feel or see or hold on to uh because it's all in a computer somewhere well you you've actually asked a metaphysical question there <laughs> richard well, in that uh it's a good place to begin that, no no nobody actually it, well, it was Aristotle who first pointed this out, apparently, that nobody can actually say whether any exchange uh, of goods, whether by barter or with money, is a, a fair exchange or not. Uh, there the just haven't been the phil philosophical tools to deal with that. So what economists have done is they've, came, they've come up with this uh, model of how uh, prices, val how things are actually valued, which is effective demand and effective supply, the balance between them. So by effective demand, we mean uh, the weight of money. So obviously in a, a star an area of famine, uh, there would be very high uh, intrinsic demand, but very little effective demand because the people would probably be very poor. And the same kind of thing with uh, supply. Uh, the supply will only be effective if it's reacting to 
the, the weight of money demanding it. So some things you can't increase the supply very quickly, for instance. And so the price, the price uh, placed on anything, the value placed on anything in money terms, is a rash is a, a effectively a way of rationing and matching up the effective demand and the effective supply by setting a price where they'll both be the same. Uh, so that's how that's how things are valued, and obviously sometimes the things that the, are the weight of demand for something might not be because it's a uh, very important to life, for instance, I suppose, like diamonds, uh, jewellery diamonds, for instance, are wanted because of their beauty and their prestige, for instance. And Oh, wait, you just said something very important. You said prestige. That's, that's a total emotional response. So are you saying, well, I, are you kind of saying that, that some, some economies are really more emotional than based on, on hard numbers? Well, there's a, there's a whole, well, we're talking about need versus desire here. Um, so there are some goods that are called Veblen goods, I think it's pronounced after the economist who came up with them. And these are prestige goods that uh, when economies have a, a fairly wealthy middle class uh, demand will pay a high price for because they show that they've arrived. So the more expensive car, the uh, the house that's perhaps too big, you know, that kind of thing, or the the uh, the bling, the gold jewellery, all that kind of mm. thing. So, so this is when we get beyond what's called a sustenance income into an area we call a discretionary yes. income. Yes. Define the difference between the two. Sustenance is basically <laughs> when you're hanging on by your fingernails and you're wondering where your next meal's coming from. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's basically the the peasant economy where, where there isn't much. Uh, people don't use money really, and where they have a, a shortage of something, they'll try and barter with with you know, with a neighbour if they've got a surplus of something. Uh, so that's substance, substance, and you're very uh, in that kind of economy. You're very susceptible to famine if uh, because there, there won't be a proper market in food over any wide geographical distances where food could be brought into an area uh, uh, where there might be problems so in Europe for instance the, that kind of situation arose uh, in the, as, as, uh, as late as in the 19th century you know in, in parts of Russia and obviously the Irish famine. I was just thinking the Irish potato famine. Yeah, and that that was because, you know, half the population of Ireland were, were, were basically uh, life resolved around this wonder crop, the, the potato that provides you with all the nourishment you need mm. except uh, vitamin A, I think. I'll tell you uh, what, hold it there, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Robert Harrison, who was an economic analyst and a consultant to the city of Birmingham and did so well in his own investments that it kind of follows this old ABBA song. You're on the other side of midnight. This is in honor of Art Bell. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return.
You're listening to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, If you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight on this Saturday night on the 28th of April. Gosh, it's April already. My birthday kind of flew by almost a week ago. Well, three days ago. Anyway, my guest tonight is Robert Harrison, who when he's not doing things with images on other planets, actually he's a kind of a very grounded kind of guy. He's an economic consultant. He made a pile, was able to retire and live the life of uh, 
luxury and ease on easy I'm, I'm, I'm kind of exaggerating Robert um, tell you what let's let's jump right in here what is let's do a little more history before we get into cryptocurrencies because I want to contrast traditional economics and traditional economic um, confidence with what's currently going on which I think at some point we're going to compare to tools before we get there let's go back to what is the earliest culture that you know of where people actually exchanged something, a piece of metal, you know, a, a, a piece of script, whatever, for something of value? It's probably always been going on as long as, um, you know, because the thing is with uh, our species of humans, we've always tended to congregate in large groups and uh, interact with other large groups when when we meet either to uh, perhaps get violent or or be friendly uh, so the you know the, the fact that we ha that we uh, that we have this gift giving um uh, let's say what's the word impulse impulse uh, going to use that but inclination predilection yes. <laughs> i'm thinking more <laughs> yes we'll go with that um, inclination it's it's in the genes basically um so the fact that we've we've got that means that we've probably been exchanging things um since sheer dot really uh, either as mutual gift uh, giving or as proper bartering you know, I've got this uh, you've got something I want let's exchange uh, money probably only when civilization arrived I think uh, because so we're basically really... talking city states in Sumer that kind of thing roughly what yeah, 6,000 years ago Yes, but even then, you know, in as, as late as, uh, let's say, Aristotle's Athens, uh, bartering was only slow, slowly being uh, edged aside by money transactions. Uh, and so uh, Aristotle was able to make the, the observation that when uh, you had... Uh, a market was dominated by money transactions. People's incentivization was completely different with bartering. Uh, they seemed to think in terms of needs, uh, meeting immediate needs, whereas because money was a store of wealth, uh, they tended to become accumulators of money. Uh, and the more money, the better. Uh, because of its use, future usefulness in, um, in you know anything you wanted to get or increase your standard okay of so, so let's let's really kind of look at this okay <clears throat> in in a barter economy uh, you've got five potatoes and I've got you know six ears of corn yeah and we do something with the stuff right in front of us that you get the the, the corn you want and I get the potatoes I want that kind of thing Right. We, yes, we, we haggle about yeah. the, the barter price. Yes. But when you introduce the concept of money, which is an independent third thing that stands for, that stands in for the corn or the potatoes, you're saying that we now know that that changed people, that changed society. It, 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 it basically changed um, psychology to where the accumulation of that third thing, be it, you know, a, a piece of gold or a piece of tin or a piece of alabaster, that thing that was supposed to represent the value of the real stuff in front of us, that that really changes the dynamic of the barter interaction. Well, it's no, it's no longer sort of, not really barter anymore. One well, thing, well, what started out uh, to be barter is now something much more abstract, and people yes, people's, people's managed to uh, take into themselves the abstraction without 
thinking about it. And one of the, the other things that falls out of, of course, with money, because you're into numbers now, uh, uh, abstract numbers, is that um, suddenly you ha you've got to think about whether you're making a profit or a loss on any transaction. And so uh, economic transactions have to be be uh, more economically sophisticated on behalf of the behalf of the buyers and sellers. Uh, you know, they've got to start thinking about can they drive down the price? Uh, can they improve the product to differentiate uh, from other people uh, at the same price? So those sorts of things start to come into play, especially as the market gets bigger and you know, the, the mat, you, know, you get specialization of labor, which is almost impossible without money. Uh, it certainly uh, facilitates it. Uh, you get economies of scale because, say, somebody is just specializing in entirely in making shoes or something like that. Uh, so it's much more, it's much, it, it just really oils. Uh, uh, economic, you know, the transferring of goods and services between people. People are safely able to specialise because they know they earn the money to buy whatever they need to get. I, I, I'm just thinking, you know, we, we, we think we know Sumer. We think we know the, the 6,000 years ago that this is when this concept of money uh, was invented. But we know that human beings, you know, and Homo sapiens sapiens go back 100,000, 200,000 years now. Why, Robert, did it take so long for the abstraction of a third thing to stand in for the goods in front of people? Why did it take so long for that concept to kind of take root? It seems such so because it's so liberating. I mean, you can't really carry around a whole lot of potatoes or, or corn. There, there's a limit to even beasts of burden. There's, there, there, there's a limit. Well, one reason, of course, is for a lot of our history, we were hunter-gatherers. So we, we were really trying to provide for ourselves. Um, people had to have lots of multiple skills. Um, probably groups were too small for too much specialization, there might have been specialization between men and women, perhaps, in terms of, let's say, hunting and, let's say, making clothes from uh, from the animal skins. Um, so I think it's just having a lot of people in one place with authority. Uh, I think authority is important here, who can, some kind of authority, you know, village elder, you know, city elders or a king or something like that, that can say, I'm going to guarantee that this abstract thing, this, you know, this piece of uh, minted gold will be, uh, will be um, honoured as money. When did the idea of banking come in? Because we're going to talk about banking later in the show. Um, my understanding is it was the Templars, uh, you know, around the turn of 1000 AD, who invented the concept of, of a paper transfer to where you didn't have to carry, you know, 500 pounds of gold with you on a journey. You could basically carry a, a, a letter that said you would owe or the third party would stand in and pay a, a debt uh, based on it being banked somewhere, being stashed somewhere, where you could write uh, money to that account and you didn't have to have it on your person. When was that? In, when, in other words, when were banks invented? Well, you've got me there, Richard. <laughs> oh, darn. Uh, no. Because if you think of it, banking is uh, grown out of is grown out of people who are willing uh, to hold money, out of activities of people who are willing to hold money safe for you. Uh, the lending of money has been around for thousands of years. Uh, the record keeping and uh, 
and legal documents that are around loans have been around for thousands of years. Uh, certainly, you know, you got that in the Old, old Testament where rich people uh, loaned money to, you know, poorer neighbours and the rest of it, you know, which is why there's a whole thing in the Old Testament around the evils of usury, you know, mm. very high interest to rates. To say nothing of that great line from the New Testament where Jesus takes out after the money changers in the temple. Although that was actually uh, it, it, what, not so much lending of money, that was about um, actually exchanging of money. Uh, as I understand it, or somebody said, told me, uh, the temple would only accept pre-Roman uh, independent, uh, you know, from the Maccabee period uh, when Israel was independent, money for its its coffers. So the Roman money was unclean, and so you had these uh, uh, money changers who exchanged your Greek or Roman coins or whatever for the uh, the old currency, which would go into the coffers. But the exchange rate was apparently, the fees or the exchange rate was very poor. And of course, the temple probably got its cut of the earnings of the uh, the money lenders for having their pictures within the temple. Hmm. So the, that, that's the story behind it. It almost about. seems, Robert, like it's one of these things is like a chicken and egg thing. Which came first? Cities and diversification of labor and specialization and all that, or the idea of money so you could aggregate diverse people in a place, a city, a town, a, you know, a, a village, and therefore you got diversity of skills and all that. In other words, how is money really, is the invention of the idea of money, a third thing stand in for real stuff in front of you, goods, it, is that really it, it, the, the key that made civilization possible? No, civilization definitely existed for, you know, say about 3,000 years without money or without any big use of money. Uh, so it's money as a, uh, an invention of civilization, which has allowed civilization to become much more sophisticated. Uh, uh, because I don't think you would, you know, if you think of science and technology, I don't think many people could make a living uh, bartering their uh, original scientific research. No, not at all. Although Da Vinci does come to mind. <laughs> but that's so much, much, much later in history, much later. Okay, what I wanted to do was just kind of lay a foundation for what we think of as normal economics. And I don't know whether we've done a, a decent job of that before we get into this very ethereal concept of cryptocurrencies and numbers in a computer and chasing blockchains. I mean, we're going to have to define all of this stuff. So where do you want to jump in? Who was the first guy who came up with the idea of a cryptocurrency, which I guess would be this thing called Bitcoin? Well, actually, well, I don't know the name, but uh, there were people since the, the beginning of this century, uh, people were trying to uh, develop the idea of a an independent electronic money, digital uh, money. Uh, but there were certain... Uh, now, when you say the beginning of the century, you mean the 20th, 21st uh, divisor? 21st, 21st century. Okay, so 2001. Okay. Now... Uh, so I don't who, know the names. Okay, well, were these private citizens? Were they bankers? Oh, were yes. they government? Were, who they came were, up with the idea? Okay. They, they were private citizens, uh, people who were very accomplished in programming and uh, sort of doing the positive kind of hacks, if you like, uh, of... If, I see a name Satoshi popping up here. Is he Japanese? Right. Uh, right. So Bitcoin itself, I'll just get to that slide to remind myself. <laughs> have to excuse me. Satoshi Nakamoto. Yes. Where are we? So it was a Japanese guy, not even 
in yeah, the... Not, well, it, we think it's generally thought that it's a pseudonym and it might have been a group of people. Ah. Sorry about this, Richard. No problem. Uh, we have time. We have three hours. We can always advance. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so basically, uh, in just before the financial crisis, I'm going from memory here. Uh, Are we talking the one in 87 or the one in 2000? Oh, we're talking about 2008, in August okay. 2008. Um, oh, where are we? Here we are. No. Sorry about this. No problem. It's just among friends. Well, basically, in August 2008, the first inkling of anything happening is that a bitcoin.org um uh, website was registered and then a little time later at around the time of the financial crash which is October 2008 well now that's uh, an interesting series of events so that the yes, Bitcoin was, concept preceded the fall off the cliff a couple months later almost like whoever created Bitcoin knew something bad was coming? Who knows? Uh, it was... Uh, yes, here we are. So basically, 18th of August 2008, the internet, the name Bitcoin.org is registered. And then on the 31st of October, so this is just after uh, Lehman Brothers went down and the bank world... <laughs> Western banking system went down. Uh, somebody under the name of Satoshi Nakamoto uh, publishes a paper on the cryptography mailing list website, which obviously is a, a, an enthusiast group of, of, of cryptographers. And this describes how a peer-to-peer -peer electronic payment set system could, that could be set up that overcame the deficiencies encountered in the previous attempts. And that was especially around the problem of stopping uh, your crypto coins being deliberately or accidentally cloned. So you would have two, two, two uh, coins with the same uh, registration number, so to speak, like, you know, like uh, mm. serial numbers on bank. So okay, we be, need to get so really we need to get really granular on this because again, I am totally, totally, totally unexpert in any of this, and I want to know why, in a world of digital virtual reality, does anybody in their right mind think they can create a digital medium of exchange that will have any permanent value <clears throat> when one of the main problems we have today is. Russian hacking of the U.S. elections, that kind of thing, and poking into power plants and trying to turn on and off nuclear, you know, regulatory stuff in power plants. I mean, to me, the most unstable currency idea imaginable would be a digital currency. Why am I wrong? Well, in a sense, all, most of our money exists as on, on uh, in digital uh, uh, ledgers and so can be hacked and stolen but uh, supposedly so, in the myth and so and there is a huge amount of something called gold stored in a place for the u.s called fort knox which we know is a myth because there couldn't be enough gold to cover you know what one tenth of the uh, u.s no. you know economic transitions but at least there was a time when money was tied to a real thing gold now, both in the era of, of what they call fiat currency, which is, you know, paper, and in the whole cryptocurrency realm, which is nothing except digital bits, we've completely divorced from the idea that a thing stands in for another thing. Well, remember with gold, uh, in the days of the gold standard, America had a kind of a gold standard up to about 
72. Yeah, yes, till, the, till, till the, Nixon the, permanently took us off, right? Uh, yeah, you've got to remember, not a, not every note in the dollar was backed by gold even then. It's just that you could exchange dollars for gold. And the governments of the world try to f fix the price of gold. So um, FDR set the price of gold at $35 to the ounce. And they try to uh, to maintain that price all the way to uh, Nixon gave up on on the idea because in other mark in other markets uh, you're occasionally getting gold people selling gold to each other at much higher than thirty five dollars an ounce and so uh, <laughs> and so a sort of round tripping with uh, America you know getting your gold for $35 an ounce and then selling it for, say, $50 an ounce in somewhere else where it was in demand. On the planet. Uh, yeah. Uh, obviously meant that uh, America was the loser. But, but going back to Satoshi Nakamoto, which we think was a pseudonym for either an individual or likely group of developers, uh, you know, nobody's been able to identify exactly who it was. But after, you know, after, immediately after the crash, when this paper was published, uh, at the start of 2009, uh, Nakamoto starts mining the first million, i.e. minting, basically, the first million Bitcoins, withdraws from Bitcoin mining after that, uh, and then the first tranche or block of Bitcoins is named the Genesis block. And then Nakamoto also completely withdraws from any involvement in the further development of Bitcoin and its administration. Now embedded into the coding of the Genesis block was the text. Uh, it was a headline from the Times. So it was the Times, 3rd of January 2009, Chancellor on brink of a second bailout of the banks. So we think, or people generally assume, that the development of Bitcoin was due to hostility to the, uh, the banking system, uh, the current uh, situation of money being created through uh, let's say, uh, expanded or contract contracted through uh, the amount of loans given out by the banks and the repayments of loans to the banks. Uh, so sort of as a, a rebellion against the official money system. Basically. Yeah, I want to drill and down the, into and all... The that, and the I want to drill down into all this when we have time because we're at the top of the yeah. hour now. This is one of my favorite groups, Supertramp. My guest this morning, Robert Harrison. We're trying to unravel the whole Bitcoin thing, the cryptocurrency thing. What is cryptocurrency mining? If we're looking at digital data bits and computers and streaming across the internet, how the heck can you mine that which is not real, that's only a figment of ones and zeros in a bitstream? We're going to get into all of this with my guest. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're taking the long way home. Don't go away. I want to talk to you in the audience around the planet tonight. I want to talk to you about the kind of meta objectives of the Enterprise Mission and the Other Side of Midnight, this radio show that you're listening to right now. As you know, we have sponsored a number of important research projects through this show over the last couple, three years. We've raised money for electrogravitics, for M-Drive research, 
Um, we're looking very hard now at this whole orgone accumulator technology, and I want to use the Accutron, this inertial sensor, which I developed following the lead of Bruce De Palma many, many decades ago, to put the Accutron in an orgone situation, in the accumulator or in an orgone blanket, these multi-layered uh, concoctions that somehow seem to trap or densify the ether. And yes, ether is real. There is a physics of the ether. And the problem is that it all costs money. It all costs funds. So we've added a new wrinkle to the Other Side of Midnight website. Over on the left-hand side, if you go to theothersideofmidnight.com and just look over on the left, you'll see under the uh, banners which say things like Home, Tonight Show, there's a Donate button. And there's also some Donate buttons in the middle of the page if you uh, happen to get the right show. But mainly over on the left, it says Donate Now. Normally, I don't like asking folks for money. But money is energy. Money is the ability in this culture to do things, to accomplish things. And as Father Tiso said a moment ago, there is a huge need and necessity for a game changer. We need to bring humanity back together to realize its commonality and not its differences. And that's in part what this show is trying to do with a variety of programs. And part of our research effort is trying to do with a variety of, of uh, projects there. So if you have some spare change, if you have more than spare change, go to that button. Go to the left-hand Donate Now button and click on it and send us what you can spare because communication in the 21st century costs. Everything costs, but communication more than anything costs because you have transmitters and internet connections and bright people and complexity of computers. Oh, my God, complexity of computers it all ultimately has to be paid for somehow. And as you know, you can also join Club 19.5. That's an easy way to support the show because then you get archives, you get seminars, you get this thing we're going to be doing in the next few weeks on how to look at these images. And um, there are ways you can look that will give you insights to what you're seeing that will not be found uh, on NBC or CBS or ABC. So again, go to the left-hand side of tonight's show page or the guest page. Click on the donate button and send us what you can spare because, believe me, every dollar helps. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing 
to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>